if you can break yourself out of this neighborhood theory of writing, that here's a nonfiction neighborhood, and here's the fiction writer's neighborhood, and here's the screenwriter's neighborhood, guess what? It's all the same city. And you can go around the whole city and you can travel throughout it. It's not that hard to learn the principles of another mode of writing as long as your focus is on, you know, detail, truth, people, narrative. Because those are the things that that all those things have in common. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode focuses on the art and idiosyncrasies of traveling as a writer and writing memoirs about travel. This is actually the first of what I'm calling Travel Memoir Lab episodes, since they're taken from the Zoom sessions from the Travel Memoir Workshops I host in Paris each year. More about those classes at pariswritingworkshops.com or check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. My guest today is Tom Bissell, who's authored a number of travel books, including Apostle and Chasing the Sea. Tom also writes short stories, two of which have been turned into movies, including Salt and Fire, directed by Werner Herzog in 2016. In his book, The Disaster Artist, about The Room, considered by many to be the worst movie ever made, was made into an Oscar-nominated James Franco movie in 2017. Tom also writes video game scripts, and he wrote for the second season of the Star Wars TV show Andor. Tom is, in short, a multidisciplinary writer whose talents go well beyond travel narratives, and that's part of the reason why I asked him to speak with my Paris students by Zoom last summer. Together, we talk about what it's like to turn people into characters in nonfiction narratives and how the hardest person to write about in this context is often the author himself, since one must make oneself vulnerable on the page in order to be relatable. We talk about writing a travel experience as fiction versus nonfiction and the role that luck plays in getting published. We talk about failure and how to define failure and why the books Tom is proudest of having written haven't sold that many copies. My side of the conversation took place in a classroom in Paris, which means that my end of the audio is not always as good as Tom's is. Stick around past the closing outro of this episode and you'll hear an Easter egg exchange about going out for drinks in Paris. Our conversation starts with Tom confessing that he was actually afraid of travel when he first signed up for the Peace Corps in Michigan when he was in his early 20s. Let's listen in. Being from a very small town, I just had agoraphobia in a really intense way. I didn't like going new, to new places. I didn't like new experiences. So I was constantly um, just, you know, uh, incredibly anxious person in a lot of ways. And uh, I, it was so bad that for my Peace Corps interview uh, in college, I couldn't even drive to Detroit because I was too nervous about going to Detroit. So I made up some lie that my car ran out of gas. And so they did the phone over the, uh, they did the call with me over the phone. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to join the Peace Corps was to sort of eradicate this fear that I had. And uh, the good news is that it worked. I wound up getting sent to Uzbekistan um, and had a pretty awful experience there. Uh, washed out and returned home early and knew that maybe my time in that place wasn't really up. I felt I'd really kind of failed miserably. And from there, I, I had this thing in my head, I got to go back to Uzbekistan, I got to make that right. And then at the same time, I, I just through another cosmic stroke of luck, I wound up getting an internship at my favorite magazine, Harper's Magazine in, in New York City. So I went very quickly from a washed out Peace Corps volunteer with no prospects to suddenly moving to New York City to be an unpaid intern for four months at, at my favorite magazine, which I'd been reading since I was in high school. 
So that gives you a sense of just the 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 whiplash I had as you know a very young person. This is when I was twenty two years old. Um, but writing was always the thing, just sitting there in my head. And so I was gravitating in my work as an editorial assistant, as a magazine editorial assistant, and later a book publishing editorial assistant. I was always gravitating towards the international, toward travel stuff. So when my own writing career sort of got its first hesitant beginnings, I, I jumped on it and the kinds of pieces I instantly began proposing to, to magazine editors and eventually to my book publisher was, I want to go to Uzbekistan and I want to write about what I thought was the biggest story there, which was this uh, ecological catastrophe called the Aral Sea disaster, which was the fourth largest lake in the world in 1963. And by 2001, when I sold this book, it was, uh, I think, it lost 70% of its uh, water volume due to Soviet-era irrigation practices that continued apace into the independence period of Uzbekistan's existence after 1991. Uh, to my astonishment, uh, my my publisher said, uh, you should go do that. You should go tell that story. And uh, they, they gave me a book contract and I went there, reported the thing as best I could, quit my job. And that was in 2001, shortly after uh, September 11th. Uh, and, uh, and that, and then my life as, as it currently exists began. So th that was sort of my early days. And, uh, and again, you'll hear a lot, it sounds kind of a fantastical story and it certainly felt that way at the time, but I, I was always just completely keen to jump on what any, whatever, any opportunity arose. I just like seized it and just tried to, to ride that horse as far as it would go. Um, and that's kind of been the recurring theme throughout my life. I, I've never been wedded, too wedded to one type of writing or one, uh, you know, uh, genre of writing. Whenever there's a way to to do something that might help me along the path and, you know, put some money in my pocket, I'm always very keen to just try it and say, well, let's see if we can figure this out. Um, because, you know, I write for the love of it, but I also write to uh, to make a buck <laughs> without sounding too uh, crass about it. But, you know, it's the grim reality. I don't have a teaching job. Uh, I, I've, I've intermittently taught over the years and never anything that sustains me. So this is how this is how I make a living. Um, <clears throat> there's the money in my pocket factor, but some writers end up putting money in their pocket by going to law school or writing, ad, you know, advert ad copy for the Elmer's Blue Corporation. Uh, yeah. Otherwise doing it. And so how do you think you were able to align um, the need um, to make money? And I see the little plaque called best dad ever over your shoulder there. So I suspect that there are some, some familiar reasons for needing money. That was an um, official award, by the way. It was the ceremony <laughs> and everything. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the objectively best dad ever. Um, yeah, and so how have you been able to align? Because uh, the cliche of the artist is the, is the frustrated dude who's writing ad copy for Wheaties when he would rather be writing something cool. And it seems like you're writing some pretty cool stuff. Um, and so how do you think you have aligned the need to make money through the ability to write cool stuff, including video games? Yeah, I, I mean, this is going to sound glib and I don't mean it to, but it's a lot of it's just been luck. You know, I've just been in the right place at the right time. And, the, you know, the times when I have taught, to, 
and times I talk to younger writers, the thing I repeat more often than any other thing is that luck is going to have the biggest, and it's going to have the biggest impact on, on your career. It happens to actors, happens to filmmakers, happens to writers. Um, because for every opportunity that comes up, there's probably, you know, a hundred people just like you with your skill set, with your profile. And if you happen to be the person that is either on the the mind of the 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 writer or the person commissioning this to 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 you know to go write that or give you that job, like it's just it's just luck. It's just whether you were in the front of that person's mind that day or or whether you know if you wrote a similar proposal to another writer about the same subject, like whichever one was punctuated better or, or was read by the editor, like, you know, after a pleasant lunch rather than, you know, at the end of the day when they're tired, like I, I really cannot stress enough, like how lucky I know I've been and how many completely crazy lucky bounces I've gotten. Luck has a huge, huge impact on all this. It's maybe not what we want to hear. Sometimes we want to think that our talent determines this stuff. And talent is obviously, you know, uh, part of it. But as I always said, not everyone who's lucky is talented and not everyone who's talented is lucky. And sort of getting that in your head, uh, A, it keeps you from getting too puffed up and arrogant, you know, that you're getting all these jobs because you're so delightful. And it also just sort of reminds you of, um, you know, uh, for every thing you've written well, uh, and for everything you've, uh, for every opportunity you've gotten, you know, there were multiple people just as deserving as you that could have done as well or better than you on, on X assignment or X book contract. But but you you got the opportunity and they didn't. And so as the writer, I keep those things in my mind constantly to to keep me from getting too full of myself and all, but also just to remind me that like all this can go away quickly. <laughs> And and it's always good to have like a recognition of that because a you always need a backup plan. You need many oars in the water, uh, and that is another thing I stress that if you want to make a living at this, having as many oars in the water at once is 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 uh, an incredibly good idea. Because if two of the oars pull up, you know, oh look, on the starboard side, there's another one over there. I can I can keep rowing, and that's been the other concurrent. Uh, it's been the other uh, constant theme of my career. I've heard different metaphors to explain luck. Uh, the filmmaker Steven Soderbergh back in the day said, talents plus perseverance equals luck. Other people talk about how luck happens to people who are ready for it, who are ready to receive it. Uh, and so I'm curious to know, as a, as a writer, as a guy who was, who was too self-conscious to drive to Detroit, but somehow ended up in Uzbekistan and then ended up outside of Uzbekistan and ended up back in Uzbekistan, what was what's the what was the balance between studying the craft of writing versus immersion in books? Because um, I mean, you wrote a travel book, and now, depending on how many how you define travel, you've written several travel books. But you've also written collections of short short stories that have been made into movies. You have sort of co-written um, a story about the worst movie ever with uh, with Greg Sestero, who was in the worst movie ever, which was made into a James Franco movie, and mm -hmm. so. There's just, I mean, there's all these classes like this would, that would teach the craft of screenwriting. There are, there are classes that teach the craft of travel writing, the, the craft of short story writing. It's almost a cliche, people sitting around a table workshopping various creative stories. But 
what you what all these things have in common that you've done, including your video games and even your criticism, is narrative and instincts for narrative. Mm-hmm. How much of that came out of studying craft and how much of that just came out of immersing yourself in these worlds and reading a shit ton of books and playing a shit ton of video games and watching a shit ton of movies? Uh, I think they're all related. Like, and I, I and I'm I realize that I say this and I, I know a lot of writers disagree m- with me on this, but I've I've viewed like a facility with language and story, which you have to have to be a writer of any kind of narrative inclination, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. If you just have a fascination with with the way narrative sort of happens and with people and then with writing itself, if you're just fascinated by that and you immerse yourself in it, I view the writer as just kind of like a carpenter. And maybe sometimes a carpenter is asked to build a porch. Maybe sometimes they're asked to build a chair. Maybe sometimes they're asked to, you know, uh, do, do some light wainscoting, like there shouldn't be anything sort of beyond the reach of a talented or at least a devoted or a, or a good carpenter, a carpenter who's like planed a lot of things or polished a lot of things or carved a lot of things. So screenplay writing wasn't that hard for me to get my head around. Uh, I started as a fiction writer and never imagined when I was a teenager desperately wanting to be a writer that I'd ever be a narrative nonfiction writer. It just wasn't part of my ambition. But then I started reading narrative nonfiction writers that I really loved like Rebecca West or Richard Kapuscinski or, you know, any number of other people like travel writers. Uh, and then I thought, well, this is a kind of cool, interesting genre. If you just think about, don't think in terms of genre. Like I don't sit down and think now I'm writing a nonfiction piece or now I'm writing a screenplay or now I'm writing a piece of short fiction. I think now I'm telling a story. These are my characters uh, here's my ability facility with language. Uh, and here's my personal devotion to like capturing something truthful on the page. And all those th- three things come together. To me, it doesn't really matter if you're writing a screenplay or a travel piece or a, a, a review for the New York Times book review or like a short story. It's just creating an engaging voice on the page with a point of view, someone who cares about people, cares about detail, cares about just how narrative is processed and how your ideal reader sort of feels being whisked along by your voice. To me, that's, that's everything. I, uh, that's the whole ball game for me. So the genre is less important or significant to me in my head than it is telling an entertaining story, being mindful that there's another person that you're trying to seduce along the way to, to follow you eagerly. And then just, um, trying to write as truthfully and forcefully as possible. Uh, then that, that's, that's the, that's the North star. That's my guiding light. And, uh, I think if you can break yourself out of this neighborhood theory of writing that here's a nonfiction neighborhood and here's the fiction writer's neighborhood and here's the screenwriter's neighborhood, guess what? It's all the same city (laughs) and you can go around the whole city and you can travel throughout it. It's not that hard to learn the principles of another mode of writing as long as your focus is on, you know, detail, truth, people, narrative, because those are the things that that all those things have in common. Detail, people, truth, narrative. Those are the four things. So it doesn't matter what genre it is if, uh, as long as those four things are sort of present in your mind. Across genres, a, a character in a fiction book you have certain liberties to create that's that's different than a character in a nonfiction book. 
I mean, what's the, what was the name of your guide in Uzbekistan, the guy that you turned into a character, uh, sort of a humorous character in, in Chasing the Sea? Uh, I called him Rustam. That was his, uh, that was his fake name, yeah. Yeah, so Rustam, he was a very yeah. memorable character who obviously you reduced him to the size of a character. Uh, you wrote about your dad in such a way that wasn't a biography. It was about him in the context of war, I believe. Um, you took you know, the worst movie ever made and you took that director and you helped Greg Sestero make him into a character. And having read... Gideon Lewis Krauss's book, A Sense of Direction. I know that he reduced you to a character. He sure did. <laughs> Wasn't so fun being on the other side of that. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that because um, I was reading Gideon's books and it's like, holy shit, I know this guy. That's Tom. Um, yeah. What was it like to be on either side? What's it like to take someone um, like your guy in Uzbekistan and or like your dad, putting them on the page, and then what's it like to feel it from the other side when Gideon, your dear friend, turns you into a character? Um, like, obviously, in narrative nonfiction, including Chasing the Sea, including the book about my dad, um, you're operating from a baseline of fact and truth. These things happen. We did go to these places. But, you know, in all narrative nonfiction's book, in narrative nonfiction books, you wind up compressing details, you wind up conflating things, you know, conversations that you say took place here may have happened in a different place. So you're you're constantly playing with this kind of hard and fast New York Times rule of journalism, you know, which is this thing happened here. It's absolutely important that it happened here. And I agree that in certain kinds of journalism, those things are really important. But as a travel writer, you're sort of taking the detritus of life on the run and you're trying to create a narrative out of it. And so while never lying about things that happen to you, you're constantly like adjusting the narrative. And uh, I don't think that's a terribly scandalous admission. I don't think it's an outrageous thing. Some purists would say, oh my God, how dare you? But I'm just saying as a narrative nonfiction writer, uh, you know, you're always doing things that kind of dance the lot between the line between you know fictionalization and and sort of narrative uh optimization i would say and as long as that the fictionalization is not tipping into making you seem braver smarter or, or uh you know uh as long as it's not ag aggrandizing the writer i think there's you know a line that you can walk on the side of the angels with um so you are creating characters out of real people. You're creating stories out of real events. And the one thing, you know, real events almost never resemble is a story. Uh, the story doesn't really begin until you're like, oh, here's here's where the story begins and here's where it got complicated and here's where it ended. Meanwhile, you know, in real life, that story never ended. You've, you're, you're arbitrarily assigning a box of time for a period of time. And in writing about it, even though it's all real, you are fundamentally fictionalizing it. And I've said this a lot. Some people agree, some people disagree, but that is my position. So by turning real people into characters, you're taking liberties, you're trying to be honest, you're trying to be truthful. You're not trying to damage that person, certainly, unless you're doing like a hostile uh, profile of, you know, some scoundrel or something. And that's even more important that you're rigorous, rigorously adherent to the facts uh, in, in those instances, because, you know, writing hostily about people, they will come after you. And it's important you you have all your ducks in a row. But if you're writing about someone that is that you're sympathetic to and is sympathetic with you and you sort of enter a contract with the reader, that you're just trying to represent the 
authentic texture of that person for you on the page for a stranger to sort of eavesdrop and watch. Uh, I've, I've you know done it throughout my career over and over again, writing about other people. Um, most of the people I've written about still talk to me. <laughs> so I, I, I don't feel like I've ever betrayed anyone, but it's a weird, it's a weird thing because they're going to read themselves as being perceived by you. Uh, and that's never going to feel like who you are to yourself. And I now know this vividly because Gideon, my friend Gideon Lewis Krauss wrote a wonderful travel book about a series of pilgrimages he went on. And one of them was one that he and I went on. We walked across Spain in 2009. Uh, it's like a six week walk, 800 miles. And uh, seeing myself become a character through his eyes, seeing the ways that he'd like, you know, um, simplified our story or conflated conversations that we'd had, uh, put something I'd said in one context into another context. I was like, oh, so that's how that feels. Um, but it didn't bother me. Uh, it's part of the game. I mean, I knew he'd be writing about me and, and, uh, I feel like as long as you're, writing about people with an open heart and you're writing about people with curiosity and you're writing about people open-mindedly like uh you can't really control how the other person is going to react and hopefully they'll 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 respond to the act of you creating them on the page with the same sort of fascination and love that you feel you know that you felt pouring pouring your mold of them <laughs> for the reader to experience so uh, it's an odd feeling. It's a weird feeling. I don't necessarily recommend it, but as writers, you're going to have to do it to lots of people. And, uh, the thing that I always try to do is remind myself that, you know, it's, it's a functionally a conflict, right? It's, and, and they're civilians and I'm a, I'm a soldier in that conflict and reminding yourself that the person on the other, on the other end of your prose, uh, is a defenseless human being who, who doesn't have, all of the, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, you're trying to get all these exquisite subtleties expressed and they're just gonna, they're gonna react to the fact that you, you know, said their shirt had a ketchup stain on it and they seemed kind of ridiculous. They're gonna like obsess about that. And and you ha constantly have to imagine what it feels like to be written about. And if you're saying stuff about other people that you wouldn't necessarily say to their face, or portraying them in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be willing to stand uh, up in a you know a figurative or literal court of law and say yes, I believe it. I believe this. This is an accurate summation of 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 uh, this person. Then then you should maybe think about how you're writing about them because you really do have to you have to be on the side of the good when you're writing about other people. And I don't mean write about them only positively, but you just you have to remind yourself that that not everyone is crazy about being written about and you have to just do it with gentleness and, and compassion and, you know, and honor and for, for lack of a better word, just have to be an honorable person. Um, are there times when, when you want to write about something in a creative nonfiction way, but because of your discomfort with turning someone into a character or with how reality played out that it becomes a short story instead? So in 2001, uh, I, I, I spent, uh, a week in Afghanistan right after the war broke out. Wars uh, of Fridians. It was my, yeah, Wars of Fridians. That, yeah. that was a piece that I wrote 
that never got published for the magazine that that commissioned it and uh then wound up you know was devastated that this piece that i wrote that i you know admittedly they'd asked for 7500 words on the war in afghanistan and i came back with a uh you know, probably 75,000 word story that I just assumed they were going to, you know, be to use, use the whole magazine to, uh, to, 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 they were going to print, you know, the, the entirety of my thing. And they were like, uh, you're insane. You didn't come back with a story. You came back with a book, please go away. Um, but that frustrating experience, uh, was later turned into a short story about journalists getting lost in Afghanistan huge chunks of that story were uh pieces that i'd cut out of uh you know the the magazine story that you read rolf that you referenced war zones for idiots which god's hard to believe came out 20 years ago yeah. um so the times when i have used stuff that's you know real life uh tends to just be from you know chunks of reported pieces that i've done that dropped out you know i've wound up writing a lot of fiction about places i've gone to as a journalist and and uh that's just because, you know, you go to some place, you fall in love with it, and you just want to write about it. And uh, I tend to only write fictionally about places where I've been. I've never tried to write fiction about a place that I've never been to. Um, maybe that's a failure of my own imagination. Maybe that's a limitation I have. But I, I find it extremely hard to write forcefully about a place without having firsthand experience. I know a lot of people can do it and have done it brilliantly. I envy them. I'm not one of them. So um, I don't know if anyone else in the room has that. I don't even, I'm not even sure it's a flaw, but has that, you know, uh, not even sure it's a problem, has that tendency to not being able to uh, write about someplace you haven't been. But I certainly do. And that feels relatable. Actually talking about things that are hard to write about, one theme that has come up a lot in this class and others is it the, often the hardest character to write about in the context of creative nonfiction is the I character. Mm. Again and again, the advice is put more of yourself in it. Tell us more about yourself. Who is this person who is on the page, this I character? So we've talked a little bit about, you know, putting your friends on the page or trying to be honest to other people. What about reducing yourself to the size of a character and sort of the duty to be vulnerable and raw and ragged edged in such a way that the I character actually resonates as human instead of a protected identity. Yes. Uh, anyone who has a forceful eye on the page, this is something you're going to have to wrestle with. And not every writer does. And there's lots of writers I love where their, their eye persona is incredibly discreet and nearly invisible. Uh, and then there's writers with an eye persona that is like just endlessly fascinating and, and followable. And you just want to learn everything you can about that person. Uh, I've never hesitated to make myself a character on the page. Um, I've never hesitated in trying to exploit my point of view for all it's worth. But the person, the version of me that exists on the page is probably a little bit dumber than I am in real life, uh, probably a little bit more naive than I am in, uh, in real life, probably a little bit more bumbling than I am in real life. So I've certainly been conscious of creating this kind of chuckle-headed, good-natured, amiable guy who goes out and has crazy adventures on the page. I've done that in a lot of my books. Is it truthful? I mean, yeah, to some extent it is. But creating yourself on the page is also an act of ice-cold calculation. And it begins to feel like ice cold calculation 
when you, the reader, sense that the writer is arranging all the medical physical metaphysical mirrors in a piece to reflect well on them, you know? And that's when I, as a reader, start pushing back against an I persona that is exquisitely created, but feels like they're always right. Every assumption they have always proves true. Uh, every scene sort of builds to them being proved correct yet again. I do not trust those I personas because, of course, that's not what anyone's real life feels like. You're constantly thwarted. You're constantly wrong. You're constantly forced to reevaluate your your perceptions and your your precepts and your presuppositions. So um, I've never really had any hesitation to beat myself up a bit on the page and make fun of myself. Uh, I realize that inclination doesn't come naturally to every writer. It certainly did to me, probably because a lot of the writers that I love did that. But um, I just try to create a version of myself that is interesting, uh, that has a point of view. I try to incorporate, uh, uh, Rolf, did you just say the jaggedness, uh, the rawness? Yeah, the raggedness, um, the, the vulnerability. Yeah, like vulnerability is a big one. Like, um, you know, uh, depending on what our relationships are with our families, that some kind, sometimes determines how willing we are to be vulnerable on the page. Um, and I, you know, had a, a was happened to have a really wonderful man who's a father who was incredibly affectionate, who hugged and kissed me and taught me early in my life that there's nothing wrong with being vulnerable. And uh, so that's another stroke of cosmic luck that I had, that I had this wonderful dad who, who encouraged that in me. And so uh, sharing that vulnerability, as I have throughout my life with other people, I try to be personable. I try to, you know, meet people halfway. I mean, here's the thing. Let me just stop what I was saying. Everything you are as a human, are you open? Are you curious? Uh, are you engaging? Or are you kind of dull? Are you boring? Are you pedantic? Are, are you aggravating? Well, guess what? Those things are going to come out on the page. Like who you are comes out on the page, whether you like it or not. So if you are pedantic and aggravating, well, then there's a great comic opportunity for you to 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 use that on the page and create this like fussy, you know, a uh, funny, aggravating version of yourself. If you're kind of a big, curious, golden retriever of a human being who just kind of runs up to people and and you know is constantly figuratively jumping into people's laps and saying hi, if that's your persona, you can maximize that on the page. Just because you're kind of jagged and raw or fresh and eager, like have the ruthlessness to sort of look at yourself, really ask yourself, who am I? Like, who am I as a person? How do I come off? Ask friends if you have to. And then leaning into that is a pretty good strategy to creating a, a you on the page that is compelling, that is congruent with who you actually are. That's not going to seem false. It's not going to seem like a, a made up persona. Uh, and then, you know, once you sort of master that move of, of being this exaggerated version of yourself, like have fun with it, like poke fun at yourself, poke fun at, at uh, the tendencies that you have. I think all those things, people who are naturally inclined to writing in the first person, just I think have. And I recognize that a lot of wonderful, awesome, kick-ass writers don't have this natural inclination to go into the first person, whether because they're private or they think it feels unseemly. Uh, you know, good reasons, bad reasons for feeling that way, but not everyone has this natural inclination to go to the eye. 
but I would encourage everyone uh, to figure out a way to create the most engaging version of yourself on the page because uh, it's key to being a seductive uh, narrator. You said, uh, you know, create a self, an eye character on the page that is interesting. I think a young version of Rolf would think, oh, well, I need to, this is the guy who's going to give trivia and advice and information and, and maybe make a few jokes. But there's also a self that is interesting that is actually honest about their emotions and, uh, and unafraid to talk about their weaknesses and their, the worst side yes. of So how does one work into an eye character that is one, honest about oneself and two, willing to be that kind of vulnerable? Are, are there any okay. tricks? Uh, yeah, it feels like sometimes it's hard. One, it's either, either it's something you're trying to protect, or it's something you feel like you don't have permission to say because you're not that interesting, right? So, right. How, how do you show your human side in such a way that people see your human side? Whenever I am writing about my I self on the page, and this again, this sounds glib. I don't mean it to. Whenever I, I'm writing about the I self on the page, and I share something that causes an almost internal, instant internal recoil where I'm like, oh God, I don't want anyone knowing that. That's when I know I'm on the right path. And now this doesn't mean disclosing everything. It doesn't mean disclosing the color and shape of your latest bowel movement or like, uh, you know, um, or every one night stand you've ever had. It, 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 but it is having an internal radar for sharing things that make you uncomfortable. But there are also paradoxically, the more uncomfortable they make you and the more frightened they make you of disclosing. My God, the more you're extending a hand to your sympathetic readers to say, like, follow me, I, I'll make it worth your while. Like, because we're all broken. We're all broken people. Everyone, readers, writers, and brokenness. God, as I, especially as I get older, I'm almost 50 years old, right? And the brokenness in people is what I'm attracted to now. Whereas earlier in my life, I was attracted to like shiny things and confidence. Man, brokenness is where it's all at uh, because life breaks you down. And people who break with grace and with humility and with compassion and people who break not wanting to break others, you know, because you get broken and there's two responses. You want to help uh, other people's breaks or you want to create more breaks because you're pissed off about your own. Well, I, I want to console the broken and I want to help the broken and um, leaning into your brokenness, but not in a gross, again, aggrandizing way, but in a way that is just human and helpful and compassionate. Uh, I think that's another way to lean into an I persona that, that creates something engaging on the page because uh, there's nothing worse than, than, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have all read people, talented people, wonderful writers, but their persona is kind of like a used car salesman on the page where they just, you constantly feel like you're just being wrung for your attention uh, rather than like, uh, I don't know, becoming an active collaborator in the, the work of imagination on the page. It's, it's a subtle difference, but it's really there. And whenever I'm reading used car salesman or used car salesperson prose, I should say, well, then I kind of instantly step back and I'm suspicious because I'm not seeing interesting brokenness. I'm seeing, I don't know, something less, uh, something more commodified, something more calculated. And the irony is, of course, every move you make on the page is calculated ultimately. But 
you, you kind of have to mask that somehow while also being truthful, while also being calculated. Oh, God, there's so many layers to this that are really complicated. Uh, Rolf, I don't know if you agree with that, but it, it's um, it's it's honesty wrapped around manipulation, <laughs> wrapped around like humility, wrapped around like courage, wrapped around like manipulation again. Man, it's a real Escher painting of motives. But but when you land on a voice on a page that is does feel a thing, that does feel good. I mean, I think readers notice and they engage with it. And it's all again, it's all about having a point of view. And all about having, I don't know, just some X factor. Are you really funny? Are you like brutally honest? Are you uh, a master of zingers? Are you great at just depicting other people and telling their stories? Everyone probably sitting at this table has something they do as a nonfiction or a travel writer that is just inimitably themselves. You may have to ask to see what, you know, other people think that thing of yours is. But once you kind of figure out what your thing is, I mean, work it, like figure out ways to highlight it. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the journey of being a, a writer is telling stories in a way that maximize your virtues and minimize your faults. It took me a long time to figure that out. I was constantly writing in ways that maximized my faults because I was either like taking subjects that weren't a natural fit for me or as my ambition was out stripping my ability. Maximize your virtues, minimize your faults. That should be a thing that you just have tattooed on your hand while you're writing. And uh, constantly running into students when I did teach and they were like, well, you know, for this first, my first book project, I want to do something I've never done before. And I want to try a voice I've never attempted before. I'm like, why the fuck do you want to do that? <laughs> you know, this is your first book. Like figure out, like, what do you do? Well, like focus on that five books down the line, let's talk about blowing up the form and completely, you know, reinvestigating yourself. Like when you're getting your little sea legs underneath you as a writer, and this, this, you know, this will happen whether you're, you know, 23 years old with your first book contract or you're my age now, 50 years old with a bunch of stuff behind you and you're sick of your own voice. You know, you're going to have to constantly just be rebuilding yourself both as a person and as a writer. So like, uh, it's just leaning into what's working, leaning away from what's not, and and being really honest with yourself about what's working and what's not. That phrase, what's working and what's not, <clears throat> looking at writers from the outside is often um, uh, a task of looking at what's working. And so I turn around every few years and Tom Bissell has written another genre and he's written criticism of video games and he's writing video games and he's writing cool screenplay type stuff. So why don't you talk about your failed projects? You were literally alluding to them. What doesn't see the light of day and why? Uh, is it because oh, of these issues of honesty or talk about your failures? I've written four and a half novels, including one that's like a thousand pages long. None of them have ever been published. They never will be published. I just can't seem to write a good novel. It's, it's which is tormenting to me or it was tormenting to me because I'm you know, I thought of myself as a novelist. I still do, crazily. I've never published a novel yet. I sort of, if you ask me, what are you? I'd be like, well, obviously I'm a novelist. Uh, no, I'm not, because I've never published a novel. <laughs> um, but, so that's, you know, a big thing. Uh, I just had a, a, you know, I got into the Lucasfilm family with, um, with, you know, working on Andor and then sort of got handed the keys to one of their big IPs that I wrote a, a, a script that they really liked 
I worked on this thing, you know, for over a year, and then I uh, found out last week that it's dead. They just pulled the plug on it. So, uh, and screenwriting, my God, uh, you know, if you have one out of every twenty things you write that actually get, you know, you get paid for or, or gets made, I mean, you have an incredible batting average. Screenwriting is the only form of writing I can think of where. Uh, the best things you write, no one will ever read. And the things that wind up getting made are just complete flukes, right? So um, uh, is, is there a, I noticed commotion there. What's going on? We have one movie producer in here. And oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had a, a, a Tony Gilroy, who I think is the greatest living screenwriter. Uh, uh, I worked with him on Andor and he said something that made my blood run cold. Uh, he wrote and directed the film uh, Michael Clayton, which if you haven't seen it, you should. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. He said, oh, you know, the 10 best screenplays I ever wrote uh, never got made. And I'm like, what? He's like, oh, easily. Yeah. My my 10 favorite screenplays, you know, no one will ever read them. But, you know, they're, they're in a drawer. So that, that's a form of writing where if you want to really make yourself crazy, <laughs> devote your life to that because... <laughs> Uh, it's it's pretty brutal. At least if you write a really good book that doesn't sell, at least the thing fucking exists. You know, you can write an incredible <laughs> script that everyone loves but can't get made. What is it? It's just a thing sitting in someone's drawer, sitting on someone's computer. My God, it just, it just makes you, make you crazy. So if there are any screenwriters in the room, you know, have other interests <laughs> because that is a genre that will break your heart uh, into a million pieces. So, um, yeah. What was the question, Rolf? I just went off on a tangent there. Forgive me. Um, just failures. I, I was curious to you to dig into yeah. failures as a guy whose resume seems enviable to me. Um, I'm I mean, my books haven't sold, really. You know, I've only had two books that have sold anything worth a damn. I mean, I had a book come out in 2021, a story collection that I loved. I think it's probably one of my two or three best books. I mean, I would be embarrassed to tell you how many copies it sold. It, it, it's like my failures are, uh, they're not, I don't care because it's not my money. You know, I don't crave an audience. I'm just relieved and happy anyone wants to publish me. But like the fact that my publisher still publishes me, even though I've never really sold a ton of books for them, I am incredibly mindful that, that my career is basically just at their whims, you know, like they could shut it down tomorrow and, and they could just say, look, we just do that. You do not have the audience we want you to have. You should either find another publisher or you should just go keep writing video games and TV shows. Cause there's no objective financial reason for me to keep writing books. Like they don't make me a lot of money and they don't certainly earn a lot of money. So why do I do it? Cause I don't know what I do if I didn't like, I'm just relieved. People want to publish them. I have some readers certainly, but like, the book that I wrote that I wrote that sold, you know, a magnitude more than any of the other ones was this book, The Disaster Artist, which I wrote with a former male model and frustrated actor named Greg Sestero about his uh, role in what has been called the worst movie ever made, a, a, a movie called The Room. And Greg read a piece that I wrote about the movie uh, for Harper's Magazine um, in 2009. And Greg said... I want you to write a book with me. I was like, A, I don't write books with the people. B, I certainly don't write books with former male models. Because um, Greg is like the handsomest man who's ever lived. It's really just awful hanging out with him socially. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really genuinely humiliating. And um, 
<laughs> and I was like, and this is like Hollywood. This is before I, you know, even lived in Los Angeles. This is not my beat, but he was adamant. And so I started writing this thing just as like a favor to a friend. And then as I got going in it, he and I really started working on it. I thought, oh God, this is like a true life novel. This is an incredible story with uh, about an incredible person, this man, Tommy Wiseau, this lunatic Gesamtwerk, you know, berserker who made this awful movie and thinks it's a work of genius. So Greg and I wrote the thing very fast, four months. I didn't really sweat it as we were writing it. I was just trying to go as fast and write as propulsively as possible. None of my persnickety devotion to art and truth and all this, just like trying to write Greg's story as quickly as I could. You know, so the book that is sort of the least mine and the least like written qua writing uh wound up selling you know probably five to six times more than any other book i've ever published so that's a bit disheartening <laughs> you know but uh so you asked me my, for my failures like i look at my books just the string of these books that meant so much to me most of them are not you can't get them in bookstores anymore they kind of there isn't really out of print anymore because there's this whole print on demand thing that publishers have. Your books don't really go out of print, which is nice for them because it means they never have to revert the rights to you because print on demand means there's some big machine in some warehouse in Pennsylvania where, you know, you push a button and it spits out five copies of your book, which, you know, go off to inventory. Um, so they never really go out of print, but yeah, you go into bookstores, you don't find very many of my books, uh, they're hard to get now unless you you know resort to Amazon, and I, I recommend you don't. Um, so yeah, uh, however enviable my resume is, I can assure you that it certainly hasn't felt terribly comforting or confidence building to be have <laughs> been amassing that resume. So however it looks on the outside, I can assure you it's, it was a lot more doubt and stumbling and worry and angst than 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 not. It's interesting to hear all this because I've actually heard Michael Clayton in like in writerly scripts. If you want to write a script that shows you what a good script is, read Aliens or Michael Clayton or a short list of other scripts that are uh, by reputation very good. And he doesn't even consider that in his top 10. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's that's very telling about that genre and unsettling. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yes. You, it's a wonderful way to make a living, not such a great way to, to I don't know create work that <laughs> yeah it's it's nothing to put your your unless you're just a born screenwriter like someone like tony is uh but i'm i moonlight you know i'm a i'm a i'm a hired gun but i would never consider myself like a, a screenwriter in the capital s sense of it like i'm someone who's who's learned how to do it and enjoys doing it but it's it's uh you know it's it's hired work you're hired to do jobs you try to do them well but it would never occur to me that if I were trying to tell a story completely in my own origination, I would never turn to the screenplay form to do that. I just wouldn't. I'd, I'd rather do it in a book. Uh, what are you proudest of? Uh, it's interesting. There's sort of a hired gun aspect to what you do. And it sounds like maybe a, a book that wasn't completely meaningful for you when you were writing it is by far your biggest seller. So what brings you the most satisfaction? When you're looking back on what you've done over the years, what do you think that book means a lot to me? I wrote a book about my father's uh, service in Vietnam. Uh, it's a three-part book. Um, the first part is I imagine the night Saigon fell from my father's perspective. 
And then I tell that story with a concurrent story of the last few nights in Saigon as the country fell to the invading North Vietnamese. And this is part one of the book. It's about a hundred page section. Part two of this book is my dad's and my journey to Vietnam together. We went to all the old places uh, that he was at. We went to the place where he was grievously wounded. Uh, and we just, you know, had a pretty great experience there together. And it, I think it helped him for a while anyway, put, put to rest a lot of ghosts that he had. And then the third part is kind of like an oral history. Uh, I interviewed Americans whose fathers fought in the war. I interviewed the children of South Vietnamese army veterans, men and women. I interviewed the sons and daughters of Viet Cong veterans. And I interviewed the, interviewed the sons and daughters of uh, North Vietnamese uh, uh, men and women who fought for that war. So it's probably about 30 people. None of them are named. It's just like um, just blocks of text from people, uh, you know, things that I'd recorded and then just compressed. Uh, and so it's just like this symphony of people who were raised by the veterans of that conflict. Um, I think it's a really unusual book about warfare, about the intergenerational lingering of warfare. I think it's an unusual book about how to do travel writing. And I think it's an unusual book for a son to write about his father. I think it's my best book. I think I will never write a book nearly as good as that book. I wrote it when I was 32 years old before I really, I wrote it when I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I can ever write a book like that again. And uh, I, I, like I said, it's my best book. It's a book I'm proudest of. It's one of my least successful commercial books, commercially speaking. I mean, it sold nothing. Uh, got incredible reviews. It's the only book I've had that was like in, got tons of award recognition. I didn't win any of them, but I was finalist for for a bunch of them. And it sold nothing. And uh, for all intents and purposes, it's like it doesn't even exist today. But it's the book I'm proudest of. My dad got to read it, you know, before passing away. My daughter will get to read it about her grandfather. So it's this very important family thing that where my kid is going to have the ability to interact with her grandfather in a way that like almost nobody gets a chance to interact with someone who's no longer here. So that is the thing I'm proudest of. That is the book that I think, you know, if anyone like, if my, I mean, none of our work is going to survive. We're all aware of that, right? The only difference between us and Shakespeare is, is his eventual disappearance will just take a little longer than ours. You know, we're all fated for oblivion. I mean, that's just the way of things, but if my you know work survives beyond me at all, I hope it would be for that book because I think it's a representative of my. It's the best representation of what my talent is at its at its best. I would say. The father of all things, which is something that Heraclitus said about war. He said, "War is the father of all things." Some it makes some men it makes slaves, other men it makes free. I'm glad I asked that question, and I'm ashamed to admit, Tom, I've read a ton of your stuff. I've not read that book, so no. Well, you are not alone, Rolf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're you're a member of a expansive fraternity on that one. Wait, I try not to think in terms of failure and success, because to me that is ascribing too much meaning to other people's interpretation of the of of how your career goes. You can write a book that you don't think is very good that sells a lot. Is that a success? I don't know. Is a book like my book about my dad in Vietnam that I love and that sold nothing, is that a failure? 
I don't know. Um, the thing uh, that I, I don't have any religious beliefs at all, but I am, an, I am a devotee of Stoicism. Um, and Stoicism teaches you to, to, to let go of all things you have no direct control over, to practice indifference to things you can't control. And so a good Stoic doesn't really care how he or she is perceived by others because that's not where your value comes from. Um, as a creative writer, this has meant so much to me, uh, especially as after my career has had its you know ups and downs, I would say, where I felt like on top of things and times where I've just felt you know on the mat. And some of the times this is where the success failure thing gets gets confusing. The times where I felt really on the mat or often a time after I've had like an experience that any objective viewer would say, well, that was a great success for you. Well, hell, it didn't feel like it. You know, a, a lot of times how success and failure, both of those things in scare quotes, feel to you, the writer, are not going to be congruent with how they're received by others. So I try to realistic have a realistic appraisal of my own stuff did i do i think this thing that i just wrote is good is this the kind of thing i would want to read or watch or spend the next year of my life trying to make if the answer is yes that is an unmitigating success and if i get to the end of something that i've you know maybe brute forced into publication but i'm not proud of it then i i don't even view that as like a failure i just view that as like well I'm glad that's over. I really need the next thing I work on has to be something that both puts money in my bank account, but also sustains, you know, my soul a little bit more than that. And uh, success and failure to me, those are those are those are um, outside projections that, as a Stoic, and I'm not trying to get mystical here. The thing I like about Stoicism is not mystical. Those are outside judgments that I don't necessarily feel have any validity to to my own perception of myself. So, I uh, I try to learn from every experience, whether or not they made me feel good or whether they didn't. But um, yeah, getting yourself out of the success failure dichotomy at least was very helpful for me because it made me less self obsessed about the vagaries of my career. Because if you can slip out of the success failure dichotomy, then you can you can. Um, I don't know. I think it breaks it breaks you through to some exciting new things, both creatively but also personally, because you're just less worried what quote everyone's going to think about you. And I cannot tell you the number of writers I know. Uh, this is so. It's, even saying these words makes me want to lie down and cry. I'm really worried what people are going to say on Twitter if I write this. Can you think of a more bone chilling, more depressing sentence than that? Like imagine. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the bravest human beings who ever existed, who stood up to the Soviet regime and wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Imagine sitting across from that man and being like, I'm really worried what Twitter's going to say if I write this. <laughs> you know, like, um, like breaking out of that, uh, how you're perceived, how it makes you feel, that for me has been the big creative breakthrough of my, my mid to late 40s is really trying to live stoic values and again i'm not advocating for stoicism here for anyone because the nice thing about stoicism is that it's not a missionary impulse at all like i don't care if other people follow stoicism or not i happen to but it makes absolutely no difference to me how many other people do so um stoicism has helped me i think become a more uh, mature writer 
um, a less self-obsessed writer, a more interested writer, and um, a less needy, less reactive writer. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Tom Bissell's books, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Well, what drink should we drink in your honor? What cocktail should we drink in your honor, Tom, at Harry's New York bar? The last time I was in Paris, um, uh, I was with my my book publisher, and I was I drink a lot of what I call sparkling coffee, uh, Geico, <laughs> and um, and uh, I was at dinner with all these like French journalists and editors, and uh, you know I, I brought up the fact that in Spain they they pour red table wine into Coke together. And they mix them, and it's it's like really delicious. I forget what the name of it is called, but it's like Coke and t- red table wine. Oh my god, moi, it's fantastic! And the French people were like, "What? I'm like, how do you not know this? They're your fucking neighbors." <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, that is just uh, that's an atrocity. Nobody should do that." And I was like, "Look, I'm going to show you." So I and and this is like one our half of the tables here, and then like eight other people over here who weren't listening to what we were talking about. So I poured some some wine into my glass, and I went to take uh, uh, one of their little glass bottles of Coke, and I started pouring that in. At which point, everyone on this side of the table all like simultaneously learned, turned, and they all went no, and they all like, <laughs> and they all came like, "What are you doing? No!" Um, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen that eight separate Parisians practically jumping across the table, thinking, "Stupid American, what is he doing?" And then I had to. I got to tell them all that uh, this was not an American tradition. This was a European tradition, <laughs> and they were all welcome to try it. So I got everyone to try a little bit of red wine and Coke, and they didn't hate it as much as they thought they would. So there's me changing cultures, one person. <laughs> so, so I hear that's called the Tom Bissell. If you order it at Harry's, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'd I'd want a much better drink than that named after me, like just. You just pour two things into a glass and that's the drink named after me. God, that would really serve me right.